Psalm 65. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hears prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. All right, so we're going to continue... Um, this series where we're working through the story of the Bible. And uh, this is, uh, by nature, this is uh, very general. This is a, a flyover of the territory of the Bible. Uh, we're not digging down deep into text like we, like, like we would normally do when we're together in here. But I, I think this is necessary to, to do this uh, because, and I'm repeating stuff I say at the intros to all the sermons the past few weeks, is because if you don't have like the lay of the land, you don't really know where you're at or where you're going. And uh, so it's good to do this. It's good to kind of see this is, where we're, this is where we come from and this is where we're going. Um, I'm not a big Star Wars fan. I have seen some of the Star Wars movies. But if you, so if you're like me and you're not a huge Star Wars fan and you listen to people who are huge Star Wars fans talk, you'll know what it's like to be like in Sunday school at a Christian church. Random stories from this episode here and from the second prequel, and then from one of the new movies, and questions about is this canonical or not, and um, sometimes I just want to say, like, so what, where is all, all this headed? Like, why are these characters fighting with each other? You know, who are they? Where did they come from? Why do they seem to be close in some ways, but, you know, angry at each other in other ways? Why are they swinging sticks of light at each other? Those sorts of questions. What's, what's the end goal? That's what we're doing here is just like a big overview, uh, flyover picture of what the story of the Bible is about, which I, I think is absolutely essential to understanding. So like next year when we talk about the story of Jonah or the story of Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira or the story of David, to be able to locate it in the big canonical story is, is essential and helpful. And sometimes in the Christian church, we ignore that. We kind of... Uh, make a big deal about the stories, but not talk about what they're all doing together. And so that's what I want to do. And we've talked, um, just give me 30 seconds to do a reset of where we've been. 
God creates this big, beautiful universe that he loves that's designed to reflect who he is and who his character is. He creates humans special of all of his creation. Humans are the most special because they of all of his creation are designed to look like him, to be God reflectors, to be image bearers, to show the rest of creation and each other what it, what it means to look like God. We as human beings spectacularly fail at this. Like Adam and Eve, you and I are turned in on ourselves. We make decisions that, that, that benefit ourselves. Uh, we love ourselves more than we love other people. And we do things and think things and say things that flow out of that self-love. Thus creating disorder, chaos, and eventually death into the world. Everything falls apart because we've managed to screw everything up. God could look at that and say, it's a mess. Let's get rid of it and start over. But he doesn't. He comes up with a plan to fix it all back to himself. Phase one of that plan, he calls this guy Abraham, who lives in um, what's now Iraq. And he tells Abraham, I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my guy. And I'm going to give you three things. I'm going to give you land. Talk about this next week from Deuteronomy. I'm going to give you offspring. We're going to talk about that just about every week. And I'm going to give you blessing. These three things he promises in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. Remember that blessing is reverse of the curse. It's not just I'm going to do nice things for you, but the things that you humans have done to mess up the world, to introduce the curse into the world, Abraham, I'm going to use you and your family to reverse that and turn it into salvation. Abraham doesn't know, how, he doesn't know what that means. He believes God. It's counted him for righteousness. He doesn't know how that's going to work. Or, or what, and of course, he's in the beginning chapters of the story. right? If you watch the first episode of Star Wars, you don't know how it's going to end. Abraham doesn't. We know because we have the whole story. We have the whole Bible for us. And that's what we're doing here today. Last week we got to, so Abraham, God calls Abraham. Abraham has kids, offspring. They grow into quite a large, um, relatively large ethnic group. They go down to Egypt. They're enslaved in Egypt. God acts to rescue his people. We call this Passover. He turns them from a slave people to a free nation under him as king. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. Now remember, I'm just going to repeat what I said last week. The Ten Commandments are not their way or our way to get into God's family. They're not their way or our way to stay in God's family. They are the house rules for those who are in God's family. Now, why would God call this nation of people and give them a bunch of house rules? Sometimes we don't ask that question. It's a good question to ask. Sometimes we're like, well, it's God. He just tells people what to do. It's what he does. It's not, just, it's not just as random as like God likes to boss people around because he's God. God calls Israel and gives them the Ten Commandments because his desire is that they become the people that Adam and Eve were called to be but failed to be. That they become image reflectors. That they become God bearers. That they show who God is to the rest of the world. So, you're going to look like me. You're going to be faithful. You're not going to lie. Um, and the rest of the Ten Commandments that we talked about last week. Now that brings us one more piece that we have to do this week with, with, uh, with Moses. God seals this deal with Israel through Moses and then gives them a tabernacle and says, I'm gonna live, I'm, I'm gonna live with you. So three questions about this. I just wanna look at, not, not three questions, but three things about this. Very, very general. We're gonna look at Psalm 65. Uh, if, if, if you haven't been here in the past few weeks, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the story of the Bible. But we're gonna kind of filter it through a psalm. Um, we're looking at Psalm 65, a uh, real kind of surface look, and then we're going to be also looking at the Exodus readings as well and the gospel reading too. So uh, th three things we want to look at today. What's the ultimate goal 
for this call of Israel that God gives Abraham and then Moses? What's the ultimate goal of that? What's the outcome of that? They don't know what the outcome is, but we know what the outcome is because we have the rest of the story. And then what's the means that God uses to do this? So first of all, uh, what's the goal? So verse four of Psalm 65, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. So what, what does that mean, your courts? This is a tabernacle language. This is temple language. Moses, God tells Moses to build this tabernacle. Eventually Solomon replaces it with a temple. And in this tabernacle, there's courts. There's a house. There's an Ark of the Covenant inside the center of the house. This is where God lives. We read in Exodus 40 that God actually comes and puts his glory in there. It's kind of fancy Bible language for God chooses to live inside the tabernacle. This is his house. It's the place where he lives on earth. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. The rest of verse four says. So this is God's house. What does that mean? That means that God lives here. Real quick, I, I just had this conversation with my youth, youth catechism uh, people uh, just recently, and I don't think that we did this last week. Where is God? Where is God? Think about that. There's two answers biblically to this, to, to, to this question, where is God? One answer is, is that God's everywhere, right? He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And that's true. It's true in the Bible. There's no place that you can go to escape God's presence. But there's a different way that the Bible speaks about God's presence in a more particular, intimate way, and that is, is that there are certain places where God especially lives. Does God live in Greece when Exodus is written? Yes, but he especially lives in the tabernacle in Egypt. And the, the example that I gave, some of you have heard this before, the example that I gave the youth catechism guys last week was, so God lives everywhere, right? Does, does God live in Adolf Hitler's heart? So some of you are saying yes, and some of you are saying no. Uh, so in an omnipresent sort of way, yeah, I guess, I mean, he's there, but not in this particular way. Not, not, certainly not in the same way that I would say God lives in your heart for those of you who are believers. It's completely different. Why? Because God puts his special presence in certain places. And the tabernacle is God's house. God says, I'm going to live. He's everywhere all over the world, all over the universe. But I'm going to live especially right in the middle of you. He puts his glory there, the smoke and the fire, which is the physical manifestation of his being living there in that house. So, God is dwelling and living with his people. And this is what happens in Exodus 25, right? We just read this a second ago. Uh, and this is the center section there. Um, I'll just read verse eight from there. God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God wants to live with his people. God wants to live in the midst of Israel. He wants to live with them. So he builds a house so that he can do that. Three things let me point out to you real quick about this. For, um, and, and then we'll hustle on. God wanted to live with Adam and Eve in the garden. Sin ruins it. God departs and he's gone. He's absent in ways that you and I who are Christians don't understand and have never experienced. God's gone. Every once in a while he'll pop back in. You know, Moses at the burning bush, um, Jacob's dream, the, the, the Jacob's ladder. Every once in a while he pops back in. But by and large, he can't be around them. You're sinful, you're there. He casts them out of the garden. You and I cannot have communication with each other every once in a while, but not any sort of long-term until Exodus 25 when he says, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to come back home. I'm going to live with you. I'm gonna make my house the house that's in the middle of your houses. I'm gonna make my presence the one that's in the middle of your presences. I'm going to live with you. Second, 
God chooses Israel out of all the nations. This is what verse four says, right, in, in Psalm 65. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. God chooses Israel out of all the nations to live with him. He insists in Deuteronomy 7, I didn't do this because you were powerful or because you were weak. I didn't do it because you were smart or because you were dumb. I did it because I made promises to your fathers and I'm keeping those promises. I did it because I love you. God makes promises to Israel. He chooses them. This emphasizes his grace. God's decision to live with his people is a pure act of his grace. It's not something that we can say, okay, we've done X, Y, and Z, and now you're obligated to come and live with us. God says, I will live with you. However, point three, election, God's choice to live with his people is never about them. It's never, so now you guys are the great guys. It's always for the purpose of redeeming the nations. What verse five says at the very end of verse five. This is kind of what Cameron was saying too when he was talking about what he'd been working on this summer. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. So Genesis 12, God says, Cameron said, God, I'm gonna bless you, Abram, but I'm gonna, through you and your awesome, I'm gonna bless all the nations. It's echoed here in Psalm 65. Again, in verse eight, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. The whole goal of God choosing Israel would that, so that they would be reflectors of the one who lives in the midst of them to the nations who don't know them so that they would be drawn to them. And this is why, and we didn't look at this last week. We should have, but we can do it now. Exodus 20 is the 10 commandments. Exodus 19, the chapter right before the 10 commandments, God tells Israel why he's giving them the 10 commandments, why he called them. And the answer is, because I want you to be a royal priesthood. I want you to be a kingdom of priests. I'm creating a people whose job is to be what Adam and Eve was. I'm creating a people whose job is to be a conduit of my glory to everybody else. You're gonna be priests. All of you are gonna be priests. So the ultimate goal is that God wants to live with his people for this, this mission of rescuing the entire world, all people back to himself. Okay, number two, the outcome. They don't know the outcome. We know the outcome. This is interesting. Verse six starts off, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. So you're hearing this. Keep on hearing all these things about nature working the way it's supposed to. Like everything going the way it's planned to go in the world that God created. Genesis 3, God tells Adam and Eve, you rebelled, and now nature is not going to work. By the sweat of your brows, there's gonna be thorns and thistles when you do your work. It's not just for farmers, that's for the rest of you, you accountants and you doctors and you school teachers. You know what the thorns and thistles are. Not literal thorns and thistles, but you have those in your work too. But somehow in Psalm 65, the presence of God with his people is, verses one through four, tabernacle and temple language is connected to creation finally working right. Creation doing what God designed it to do. Let me just keep on reading here, verse nine. God visits the earth and waters it. God, you greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. So it's almost the reverse of Genesis 3, the curse in Genesis 3. Agriculture's not gonna work, Genesis 3, except by the sweat of your brow. Now agriculture can't help but work 
when God comes to live in the midst of his people. No more let sin and sorrow grow or thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings know. Far as the curse is found. That's not some sort of metaphor for heavenly blessings up in the sky. God is determined to fix agriculture. He's determined to fix the world and to get rid of the curse and make it a place of blessing. The outcome is new creation. In fact, um, Revelation 21, this isn't in the bulletin, I'm gonna read it to you. We see this, we see the world working the way it's supposed to. And we see, uh, in addition to agriculture working, there being no more tears, so no more broken relationships, no more broken bodies, no more death. And the way John describes it in his vision in Revelation 21, he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So picture this, the holy city, New Jerusalem, heaven, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It's almost a direct echo of Exodus 25. Make me a sanctuary, I'm going to dwell with them. Finally, in Revelation 21, after the story of the Bible, God says, now it's time. The heavenly city is coming down. I'm going to make, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So I know we just talked about this in the Revelation series. I know I bring this up quite frequently in my sermons, but let me say it again. The, the, the goal of the Bible, the ultimate outcome in the story of the Bible is not us going up to heaven, but heaven coming down from God to us here. It's not about man's quest to get to God, but the story of the Bible is about God's quest to come back and live with humans, to make his home here with us like he designed in the Garden of Eden, to redeem us, to figure out a way that he can live right in the middle of us and make all things new. That's the story, that's the ultimate outcome of the story of the Bible. But, and this is the last point, we'll be done. How can we make sure that God is going to come and live here with us? How can we know that God is living with us? How do we make it happen for God to live with us? And the answer is, is we have to keep the covenant. So Exodus 24, turn back there if you will with me. Very weird story. Those of you who are here in the, uh, the Abraham passage when we talked about Genesis 15 and 17, You'll recognize echoes of this. Moses comes, he tells, the, he tells the people all the Lord's just decrees. Exodus 24, verse three, all the people say, all the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses writes down all the words of the Lord. Verse five, he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Okay, now check out this weird scene. Verse six, Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. Half of the blood, so he's got, he takes, kills, the, kills this bull, takes the blood of the bull and puts it into two bowls, two big bowls. Half of the blood, he takes and he throws it against the altar, verse six. Then he takes the book of the covenant and reads it in the hearing of the people. They say again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. They are going to keep covenant so God can live in the midst of them. And then Moses, bizarrely to our ears, to our eyes, takes the blood and throws it on the people and says, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. God is coming down to live with you. You have to obey him. We'll obey him, everybody says. Moses says, okay, let's seal this. We're gonna kill a bull, two bowls full of blood. He takes one of the bowls, throws it up against the altar. Takes the other bowl, throws it on the people, and they say, we promise we will be obedient. Okay, what in the world is up with that? So I don't wanna repeat everything I said about Hittite covenant ceremonies from several weeks ago, except in the ancient world, this is the way covenants would work. 
a suzerain, a lord, would go to a vassal and say, I'm putting you into covenant with me. I promise I will be loyal to you. I will protect you. I'll make sure your people don't starve. If you're attacked by foreign armies, I will defend you. You, in turn, will be loyal to me. You'll pay me taxes. You'll send me soldiers for my army. You won't rebel against me, those sorts of things. That's a covenant. Those covenant ceremonies were completed and consummated with a cutting ceremony where an animal, like we saw in Genesis 15 and 17, an animal, this is, I'm not, this is, by, by the way, this is not, I'm not saying this is what we should do today. We don't have to do this today. I'm saying that's what they did then, okay? So anybody, any, any visitors think this is uh, weird? I know it's weird. We're not gonna do this. Takes a bull, several animals, cuts them in half, and then Moses, Abraham and God, walk in the middle of these cut up animal carcasses. What does that mean? We know what this means because we know from history and archaeology that what this means is both parties are agreeing that if either one of them breaks faith, breaks the covenant, the curse of being cut up like that animal belongs to them. And God is saying, if I break this covenant, I deserve to be cut up. I'll pay that penalty. Abram, if you break this covenant, you deserve to be cut up. Same thing is happening here in Exodus 25, 24. Israel, I'm in a covenant with you. I'm your God, you're my people. If I break this covenant, may my blood be cut up like this bull. The blood is thrown in God's direction towards the altar to say, God agrees to this. People of Israel, you agree to it too. You will obey. Half the blood is taken and thrown towards them. It's a commitment that if they violate the covenant, they will be cut up. We want God to live in the midst of us. We've got to keep the covenant. We've got to obey the rules that God set down for us. But of course, you know the story, not just the story of Israel, but the story of your own life, hopefully, if you're even halfway self-aware, is that we're constantly breaking the covenant. We're constantly doing exactly what God said not to do and what we, we stood before him and said, God, I promise you I'll be faithful in everything. I will obey. If you're like me, you've made that promise tons of times. Even the desire to obey that promise acknowledges to obey that command acknowledges that that command has weight to it and it must be obeyed. And yet we consistently break it. Now, the remarkable thing about this is, well, so first of all, I, I did this last let me do it again. The notion that a God would say, you have to obey me or I'm gonna cut you up is, oh my word, I, I wish this guy would talk about a God of love and not this God who's trying to cut people up who disobey him. There's a couple of things about that. First of all, a Lord wouldn't be a Lord if he didn't say, you have to obey me. He's not a Lord if he doesn't. If God is God, he's going to say, I'm right and you're wrong and you need to obey me because I'm God and you're not. If we want a God that doesn't tell us what to do, we don't really want a God. We just want somebody who looks like us, which is kind of the position that I find myself in frequently. I know our culture does. I too, I find myself frequently in this. I'll give God certain things, certain things that I don't mind obeying, but I don't really want to obey him in every way. What I'm saying is, is okay, God, you're fine here, but I'm going to be God here in this area. And that's not really a covenant relationship at all. So is it fair for God to say, you have to obey me or you're in trouble? I don't know if fairness is a part of the equation. If he's God and I'm not God, this is the way it works. This is the way life works. And I can say I don't like it, but it doesn't, it doesn't make me God and it doesn't make him not God. The second thing is this, and this is the most important thing this morning. The remarkable thing about this story is this, is that we, Israel and us, are liable for the covenant curses because we broke the covenant that we promised to obey that God gave us. We break the commandments. 
It's our blood that should be shed, not God's. But if our blood is shed for breaking covenant, the covenant's gone and we're lost. The covenant's blasted. God's there somewhere. And we're here without God, doomed. God solves the problem by becoming a human being. Look at John 1, uh, the, the, the gospel reading. God solves the, pro the, the problem by becoming a human being and dwelling among us. V verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And a lot of you know this already, but the, the Greek word for dwelt there is the word for temple. It's the word for tabernacle. It says in Greek, God, the word became flesh. Jesus became flesh. God became a human and tabernacled among us. What does that mean, Jesus tabernacled among us? Jesus became the temple among us. Well, it means that two things have happened. One is that God is living amongst us in Jesus Christ. He's actually pulled it off. He's come here and lived here. But how can he do that since we violated the covenant and we deserve to die? Because, more on this later, because the entire purpose of the tabernacle, twofold, a place for God to live, but also a place for God to forgive sins, a place for God to atone for our sins. Jesus pulls that off by being the God who lives amongst us and at the same time, the God who sheds his own blood in order to keep the covenant intact. The blood that we were supposed to shed, he sheds instead to keep the covenant intact. That takes us back finally to Psalm 65, verse three. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our trans, you atone, God, for our transgressions. We don't atone for our transgressions. We couldn't atone for our transgressions. The strictest life would fail us, we just sang. But God has figured out a way to atone for our transgressions by being a human being, thus liable to the curses of the, the broken covenant, but being God, powerful enough to pay the curses of the broken covenant, dying and rising from the dead. You don't have to do anything for God to live in your midst. Jesus lives here in your midst already. It's a gift of his. How do you, how do you access Jesus? Real, real quick, practical, and then we'll be done. First of all, like be in Christian community where two or three of you are gathered. There am I in the midst of you. If you want to know Jesus, you can't do it at home on your own. You've got to be in Christian community. God's word. Do you want to hear the voice of Jesus? You've got to hear God's word. The sacrament. Coming and experiencing the presence of Jesus in all of its reality at the rail. All these things together. Put yourself in the way of what Jesus is doing. Put yourself in the tabernacle. Put yourself in the temple. Put yourself next to Jesus. God dwells amongst us. This is his goal, is to live here with us, and he does now. Let's give him thanks and praise for it. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for coming and living amongst us when we didn't deserve it. Thank you for being faithful to the covenant that we broke, for paying our price with your own blood. Thank you for making your reality a real legitimate, capital R, real experience here amongst us this morning. Help us to live in your presence. Help us to experience your glory, the glories of the only begotten God, full of grace and truth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.